Well, hello, hello. Welcome again to Living Hope Church. I am Pastor Tim. Thank you guys for being here, being a part of Living Hope Church. Um, Christmas, for many of you, is about packages and shopping and traveling and family and Christmas songs and Christmas movies. How many of you have seen and like Miracle on 34th Street? It's kind of an iconic movie, but not everybody is a, is a fan. I watched it recently, uh, kind of a little sermon research. I watched it recently, and it's a bizarre movie. Like, it's a, it's a little bit strange. I'm actually not even quite sure what the miracle is on 34th Street, right? Like, is the miracle that Chris Kringle didn't end up in the psych ward? Is that the miracle? Is the miracle that, that Macy's and Gimbel's actually got along and worked together? Is the miracle that the family got their dream house at the end? Like, what, what actually is the miracle? But you watch it, and you may not even know why, but you feel good, right? You're like, oh, that's a feel-good movie. And we all love feel-good Christmas movies, right? Some, a movie that, that has the spirit of Christmas, or a movie that ends with a big Christmas miracle, whatever that means, whatever a Christmas miracle is supposed to mean. See, a lot of movies and society in general have, have, I think, some convoluted notions about what the spirit of Christmas actually is, what makes Christmas special. I was reading this week some different quotes from some different uh, people in culture about what they view Christmas and the Christmas miracle to be all about. Calvin Coolidge apparently said that Christmas is not a time or a season, but a state of mind to cherish peace and goodwill, to be plenteous in mercy, to have the real spirit of Christmas. Okay, that sounds good, but he still hasn't told me what what in the world is the spirit of Christmas, right? Norman Peale said that Christmas waves a magic wand over this world, and behold, everything is softer and more beautiful. Really? Really? Is that what it's about? Um, Benjamin Franklin apparently said that a good conscience is a continual Christmas, Okay, good. We can have Christmas all year long. All you got to do is have a good conscience, right? Like, what are they getting at? Someone, someone I also read said that a holiday miracle would be this, would be still fitting into my clothes after the holidays are over, right? And anybody say amen to that, right? To me, it's all kind of a bunch of well-intentioned mumbo-jumbo, right? As, as Chris said, for a lot of people outside of, of, of the Christian faith, Christmas is just a celebration of celebration. Like, what are we actually celebrating? What is it about? And the reality is that the miracle of Christmas is not some Hollywood sentiment about generosity or love and family. Christmas is not ultimately just a culturally induced time to bake cookies and get together with family and put up lights and just manufacture joy. Christmas is about, listen, an actual miracle, something that is supernatural. That's what a miracle is anyway. We throw around the term miracle to mean all sorts of different things right? A sunrise is a miracle, and a miraculous athletic achievement. We say that when somebody gave birth, it was a miracle. Those things are not miracles. Those things are just a beautiful, wonderful, natural order of how God created the world. See, a miracle is when God suspends or overrides or otherwise intervenes into the natural order of the world, and something changes. A miracle is not natural. It is supernatural, And here is, listen, the supernatural miracle of Christmas is that 2,000 years ago there was a miracle on an unnamed street in Bethlehem that the Son of God was born as a baby. God became flesh. That is the true miracle of what we celebrate, that the eternal God became man. Theologian John Murray says it like this, the infinite became the finite. 
The eternal entered time and became subject to its conditions. The immutable became the mutable. The invisible became the visible. The creator became the created. The sustainer of all became dependent. God became man. See, in Jesus, God came down. He became flesh. The divine became human. And every other world religion that I've seen says that while God may help you, ultimately it's up to you to reach, to climb, to pile your way up to God. And Christianity alone says, no, God came down. When we couldn't reach our way up to him, he came down to us to save us from the tragedy of death and human sin. He became a human. Jesus came and was born. He grew. He lived. He died. And he rose again. And by this, we are saved. This, that, that is the miracle of Christmas. That Jesus Christ, eternal son of God, took on a human nature. This is what theologians call the incarnation after the Latin word, the Latin root meaning to take on flesh. God himself took on flesh. And that's what we're going to look at. That's what we're going to study for December. This morning, as we take the month of December off from our Hebrew series, we're not going to go too far today because we're going to use all that we've seen in the book of Hebrews to build a foundation for what we've seen this fall and build a foundation for for what the incarnation means. And we're going to see this morning that it means the radiance of God is seen in Christ. Next week, we're going to look at Philippians chapter 2, where we see that the pattern of Jesus himself instructs us. Philippians 2 says that though Jesus was in the form of God, he did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And we'll see that we too are called to that pattern to be empty and humble as servants. On the 18th, we're going to look at Luke's gospel. And in Luke's gospel, an angel is explaining to Mary that she is going to be the mother of the Son of God. And Mary's like, how can this be? I'm a virgin. And the Holy Spirit, or the angel says that the Holy Spirit will overshadow her, the very power of God, so that she will be the Son of the Most High. And then on Christmas Eve, we'll look at Matthew's gospel, where the angel there comes to Joseph And explains to Joseph that the birth of of Jesus will be the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy that the Messiah will be Emmanuel. A Hebrew word meaning God with us. God became flesh. And then if you're able to join us on Christmas Day, by the way, we have Christmas Eve service at 6.30 right in here. And then we're going to stick around, or not stick around, we'll be back the next morning um, at 10 o'clock. And what we're going to do is have a stripped down, no tech, no frills, uh, probably no coffee, no children's ministry. Show up in your pajamas if you want. If you don't have family responsibilities and you want to join us Christmas Day at 10 a.m., we'll be here together, sing a few simple songs, have a simple message, and just have some family time together. We're going to look at John's gospel that morning because John's gospel doesn't tell us about the human events of Jesus' birth. John actually gives us insight into the divine perspective. And John will say that the word, the very living word of God, became flesh, dwelt among us. He says, we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Jesus, the very living, breathing word of God. That is the miracle of Christmas. Theologian Wayne Grudem says it like this. The fact that the infinite, omnipotent, eternal son of God could become man 
and join himself to a human nature forever so that the infinite God became one person with finite man, that will remain for eternity the most profound miracle and the most profound mystery in all the universe. And that's what Christmas is. That's what we celebrate. And so this morning, we're going to dig a little deeper into this concept. We're going to kind of use some passages that we've already seen this fall in Hebrews as a launching point to see what Scripture teaches us about the miracle of the incarnation, about the miracle that God himself became flesh. And so I'm going to show you four things this morning. The first one is this. The incarnation means that Jesus is one person with two natures, divine and human. As we've already implied, the eternal Son of God, who we call the second person of the Trinity, right? We say that God is, we understand God from Scripture as three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. So the second person, the Son of God, he didn't cease to become God when he took on flesh. He was born as a human, both God and human. Now, throughout history, there have been several ways this has been misunderstood, so let me clarify some things. The the dual natures of Christ does not mean that he, he somehow... Um, was God, but, but only looked like a human, right? He remained fully God and became fully human. It doesn't mean that Jesus had like two halves, like the left side of him was God and the right side was, was human, or that he had a divine soul, but a human body. He was both fully God and fully man in full body and full soul. It also doesn't mean that he had like two persons, that, that he was like one entity, but had like two personalities, each with its own nature, somehow living together in one form. No, no. There was not two natures. There was, or there, there was not two persons. There was two natures, divine and human, that were unified in one person. So if I can explain it this way, I don't know if this is helpful. I'm one person, one soul, one body, right? One nature, a human nature. Jesus was one person, one soul, one body, with two natures, divine and human. All right. Now, Grudem already told us this is a, a mystery we're going to have all of eternity to dwell on, but I'm trying to explain it the best that I can. Now, again, when the angel shows up to Mary and, and explains to Mary that she's going, to be son of the mo- or she's going to give birth to the Son of the Most High, Mary says, how can this be since I'm a virgin? Look at what the angel responds there in Luke 1.35. The angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you therefore the child to be born will be called holy the son of god the jesus wasn't born through natural conception mary was a real human mother really biologically his mom but but the conception happened through the holy spirit overshadowing her see jesus had no human biological father his mother mary conceived miraculously by the holy spirit and so here's jesus human mother divine father Now, conceivably, God could have come up with a hundred different ways to bring Jesus on earth, but this is the way that he chose to do it. And I think the virgin birth beautifully shows what what Scripture is trying to communicate, that Jesus was both fully human and fully God. Do you see that in the means of, of his birth? See, since he was conceived, he grew in the womb. There's no denying that he actually was truly human and had a human nature. However, since he had no human father, there's no denying that he is the son of God with a divine nature, a human nature, and a divine nature. Going all the way back to to 451 A.D., when a bunch of of pastors and theologians and church leaders all got together and said, we we got to explain this. And they got together in the city of Chalcedon, and they defined the dual natures of Jesus by saying this, he was perfect in Godhead 
and perfect in manhood. Truly God and truly man. Two natures without confusion, without change, without division, without separation in one person and one substance. So I hope that you at least get the concept, whether or not you can philosophically, theologically, metaphysically explain it and and, and understand it to your core because it's a divine mystery, but God and man together in the person of Jesus. So what does this mean? What does this mean for us walking out of here today? The incarnation means this, that Jesus is to be worshipped, that Jesus is to be obeyed as the one and only true God in the flesh, the one to be worshipped and obeyed. See, this means that Christmas is about a miracle, and a miracle that deserves, and I would also say demands, our attention. See, decorations and lights and Christmas songs are all super fun, and I'm not against any of that, as long as you don't start before Thanksgiving. But I think we have to remind ourselves, and and parents, grandparents, we have to continually remind our kids that that's not ultimately what we're celebrating. Right? Christmas means that we have a Lord. We have a Savior. We have a, a God who became man. And we must worship Him. We must follow Him. We must obey Him. Yes, even at Christmas time. And so this Christmas, as you're remembering all of the dozens and dozens of people that you need to buy gifts for, and your kids, and your grandkids, and, and your teachers, and your, and, and, and your parents, and Uncle Albert, and the mailman, right? You're getting all those gifts. Don't, don't forget Don't lose sight of the gift of Christ, the God who became flesh. Secondly, the incarnation means that Jesus subjected himself to human limitations, yet he remained sinless. He subjected himself to the human body, but he remained sinless. Let me explain this. Again, he was fully divine, and therefore, when Jesus came to earth, listen, he retained all the attributes of God. He subjected himself to the limitations of a human body while retaining all of the attributes of God himself. And so he had a human body, a human mind. Jesus even had a human heart and a human soul. And so that means that while on earth, Jesus grew as a regular baby boy does. He matured physically. He matured intellectually. He matured emotionally. That means times Jesus got tired. He got hungry. He got thirsty. It means Jesus had to eat. He had to rest. He had to sleep. It means Jesus had emotions just like you and I. He experienced sorrow and anger and joy and grief and pleasure and disappointment and excitement. Jesus not only was a man, but, but Scripture teaches that he still is a man, that he retained his humanity even after the resurrection, even now as he's seated in throne in glory, and one day he will return as divine, as human, fully God, fully man. And we've seen this fall in the book of Hebrews that Jesus even faced suffering and hardship as he subjected himself to the limitations of humanity. And he experienced humanity in a way that's common to all people and so jesus had a a a normal human experience you can say except for one thing right he was human but his humanity was different see while every other human being born since adam has been born into and has inherited a sinful nature a fallen nature what we call the doctrine of original sin that we're all born into a rebellious sinful God-opposed state, because of Jesus' unique birth, because of his miraculous birth, Jesus comes into the world as a human but does not inherit the sin of Adam. He's born perfect, without sin. 
born as humanity was always intended to be. Now, you might think, oh, that made Jesus abnormal. But Jesus was actually the most normal. See, it's you and I that are abnormal. A normal human is a human without sin. That's what God intended. That's normal. It's the rest of us that are abnormal because we have been infected by sin as a result of the fall. And so as we saw in Hebrews 7, the author says it like this, it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest. How does he describe Jesus? Holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. This is who Jesus was, a perfect, sinless human. And so the incarnation means this. It means this for us. It means we can look to Jesus for help. We can look to Jesus for help because on the one hand, he was totally like us, and on the other hand, he's totally unlike us. And so that means this for me personally. It means that when I feel overwhelmed, when I feel stressed and anxious about all that I have going on and taking care of my four kids and paying bills and checking off my to-do list and all of my ministry responsibilities as a local church pastor, and I have people, family and friends and neighbors that are hurting, that are in need of care. I got a family member right now in the hospital. That means when I am stressed, when I am anxious, when I wake up in the middle of the night and I, my mind starts racing and I can't fall back asleep, anybody? That means that I can look to Jesus. When I'm tempted to do all that I just said in my own strength, on my own, or when I, when I go the other way and I say I'm just going to check out and forget about all that stuff, when I'm in that place... That means I can go to Jesus. And he can sympathize with me because he's a human and he's experienced it himself. He's been down the road that you and I have been down. But not only can he sympathize with me, he, since he's a perfect human, he can help me. Isn't that what we learned in Hebrews chapter 4? Hebrews four fifteen and 16 says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. See, when somebody says to you, what are you, what are you learning about in church? You say the book of Hebrews, and they say, what's the book of Hebrews about? Just tell them it's about Christmas, right? It's about, it's about the God that became flesh who can now both sympathize with us and help us in our time of need because Jesus knows what you're going through. I don't know what you're going through. Your own spouse, your own parents, your own siblings may not fully understand what it's like for you, but Jesus does. He sympathizes with the pain and with the temptations that you're facing, but he also has the power to help you and to empower you to walk in obedience, to overcome because he knows the way out. He's been there, he's remained sinless, and he knows the way out. Thirdly, the incarnation means that Jesus is the one and only mediator between God and man. See, again, as we've already talked about some this fall, we had this dilemma. The dilemma of our salvation is that we were so lost and so desperate, hearts so hard, living in darkness, Waiting the inevitability of death, cut off from God, cut off from hope. Our dilemma was so bad, only God could save us. No human effort, no human religion, no act of good deeds or, or good intentions could save us. 
Only God who is infinite, only God who is all-powerful would be able to save you, to give you life, to give you meaning and eternity and forgiveness, to save you from the threat of sin and death. But it's a dilemma because only another human being would be able to live an obedient life and stand as your representative before God. We needed a fellow human to be our mediator, to stand before God on our behalf. But we just said only God is powerful enough to do that, but yet we need a, a human to be our representative. See, the dilemma is that no mere human could bear the full weight of the sins of God's people. No, no mere human representative could endure the eternal punishment that sin requires. Only an infinite being could do that. But since the punishment for sin is death, that means that a savior, a mediator, one who would save us, would have to bear the weight of our sins and would have to die in our place to appease justice. But God can't die. It, it breaks the very nature of who God is. Only, only God can die. I mean, only man can die, but only God can save. So what was God to do? He had to come himself and be a savior. A savior for you and I that was fully God and fully human. God would have to become flesh. Jesus would have to lay down his life as our substitute. He would have to stand before God as our representative, offering his perfect record of obedience in our place as a righteous human, as one who could bear the punishment for our sin. And so the incarnation means this, friends. It means that we have to trust him. It means that we have to fully trust this Savior Jesus for our salvation. It means if you wrestle in any extent with the fear of death, you need to trust Christ. It means that if you wrestle to any extent with a sense of guilt or shame for the wrongs that you've done before God, you need to trust your Savior. It means that if you have any desire to live for eternity with God, you must trust in Christ as Savior. It means that if you wrestle with your identity, with a, with a sense of worth, and you desire to be someone, you need to trust Christ, and today you will be his son or his daughter. It means that if you desire to have full access to your creator, full access to all that you were created to be, to have hope and meaning and a future, you need to trust in Christ and find access to the Father. Again, this is nothing more than what we've already seen and read and discussed in Hebrews this fall. Look at chapter 2, verses 14 to 17. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, Jesus, likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death, you and I, were subject to lifelong slavery. Therefore Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. To make propitiation for the sins of the people. That he would be an atoning sacrifice for you and I. Friends, trust Christ this morning. Trust him for eternal life. Trust him for forgiveness. Trust him to be your savior. Trust him to be the mediator, the only mediator that can connect you to God. That can give you eternal life. Both now and in the life to come. Fourthly, the incarnation means that Jesus radiates the full glory of God's light. Jesus radiates the full glory of God's light. We saw this in the very opening verses of, of the book of Hebrews. He, Hebrews 1, 1 to 4. It said this, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, 
God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. I'm going to dig into this one for a few minutes this morning. Look at verses 1 and 2. It says, long ago, long ago throughout the past ages of God's people and the nation of Israel, God spoke to his people, but he only spoke, as it were, in bits and pieces through the prophets. But now, in these last days, in the days of Jesus, God has spoken to us through his Son. See, the prophets always spoke truth, but through the Son of God coming to earth in the flesh, now he is the truth, the very truth of God manifested on earth. Jesus is and was the message of God spoke loud, the word of God become flesh, the heart of God come alive, the full and final revelation of God came in Jesus the Son. And so verses 2 and 3 go on to say that, that through the Son, God in fact created the whole world. Jesus was not just some, some second tier character in the story. No, no, he's been there from the beginning. Through the Son of God, the whole world was created. And that even now, Jesus upholds the entire universe by the word of his power. And one day, Jesus will return and inherit all things, all of the created world, because it all belongs to him. He is Savior, and he is Lord of all. And so verse 3 will say that this son is the radiance of God's glory. Not, not, Not a shadow, not a reflection, not a little bit of God, but the exact imprint of God's divine nature. Jesus came to earth to rescue people from sin and to death, to bring them into God's presence as the exact imprint of God himself. And to do this, he had to make purification for sins. And as we've seen this morning and and in Hebrews this fall, to do that, he had to be our high priest. Right? A high priest is just a way of saying a mediator, one to stand between us and God. He had to make purification for sins, verse 3 says. And that means he would do that by sacrificing himself, laying down his own life, For the wrongs that you and I have done. For all that you've thought, all that you've said, all that you've done, the things that no one else knows about. Jesus laid down his life for those things as your high priest, as your sacrifice. And then he rose again from the dead. Rose again in victory, conquering sin and death and the devil. And then he ascended up into heaven, the scriptures teach. And he is now seated at the right hand of God on this throne of grace in majesty on high and will one day return. And all that Jesus is, all that he was, all that he did, all that he is doing, all of that radiates the glory of God. All of that is the light of God, is the heart of God radiating out to you and I so that we can see God. See, the incarnation is not some side trick of Christianity. It is radiating the full glory of God's light. Jesus on earth. Jesus on earth radiates the glory and the heart of God. 
and all that we've already shared this morning is, is radiating the, the glory of God. Jesus living among us as one of us was radiating the glory in the heart of God. Jesus dying as our substitute, Jesus rising again in victory radiates the glory and the heart of God. Now when we talk about God's glory, we just mean God's fullness, the, the weight, the fullness of who he is. All of his beauty, all of his power, all of his love, all of his goodness, all of his sovereignty. God the Son radiates, he admits the fullness, the full glory of God the Father. That word in the Greek in Hebrews 1 verse 3, that that he is the radiance, it, it could just be translated, he's the brightness. He is the brightness of the glory of God on earth. Now keep in mind... This verse does not say that Jesus merely reflects the glory of God, right? Because a lot of people, even non-Christians, would say, yeah, Jesus was a good man and he reflects something that's divine or good or, or admirable. No, no, he's not just reflecting it, he's radiating it, right? I shared with you earlier this fall how humans are actually created to, to reflect the glory of God. God created us male and female in his image to represent and to reflect the glory of God on earth. And even though now you and I are are marred, are tainted by sin, even now we have the capacity to reflect the light and the glory of God. But we only reflect God's glory like the moon reflects the glory of the sun, right? We're just reflections, the light bouncing off of us. But Jesus doesn't merely reflect the glory of God the Father. He himself radiates the glory of the Father like the sun radiates light. You see, that that's who Jesus is, that was, that's what Jesus is doing, because he was not merely an image of God, he was God himself, as we read, the exact imprint of his nature. Jesus in the flesh radiated the fullness of God's divinity because he was and is God himself, the image of the invisible God. Jesus himself said, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Listen, it's a miracle. You can't explain it any other way. Other than uh, something miraculous, something supernatural, that God became flesh. This is not a sentiment. This is not a Hollywood feeling. This is not something you could conjure up with, with fresh-baked cookies and decorations. God became flesh. Miraculously emanating, radiating the brightness, the glory of God. See, to know God is to know the Son, and to know the Son is to know God himself. And so what does that mean? What does this incarnation mean for us it means that we can look to Jesus you can look to Jesus as the one who radiates the fullness of God who is the light of God that means when you need life when you need direction when you need hope in the midst of darkness you look to Christ who who is the very brightness of God if you join us on Christmas day we'll look at this passage from from John chapter 1 John chapter 1 says that in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So many of us, we live this life, and we go through seasons where we feel heavy and depressed and discouraged and downtrodden, like this cloud, of thick cloud of darkness and heaviness weighs over us, and everything is tainted, everything is shadowed. But Jesus comes into that and brings life. And light is necessary for life, isn't it? And so Jesus was the life, was the light of men. He is the radiance of God's great life-giving 
light shining on earth. God, the giver of life, the creator of all things, the one who gave you physical life, who can now give you spiritual life through the light of Christ at work in your heart. So look to him. Look to him for life. Look to him for hope. In the midst of whatever darkness you're facing, you can know God and his light can shine. In Luke's gospel, this old, old man by the name of Zechariah prophesies about the coming of Christ. And listen to his prophecy. Luke chapter 1. He says, because of the tender mercy of our God. Man, whew, we could stop right there and just dwell on that. Couldn't we? The tender mercy of our God. Whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. It, it, it sounds like some, some kind of poem or something, doesn't it? Like comparing Jesus to a sunrise, but this is the word of God. It says the coming of Jesus is like a sunrise that creeps over the horizon when it's the darkest and the coldest. Just before dawn, the coming of Christ was like a sunrise. And what does he bring? He brings the radiance of God's light. For what? To guide your feet. To guide your feet, Zechariah's prophecy says, toward the way of peace. And how many of us if it weren't for God's grace, how many of us, if it weren't for the tender mercy of God, and maybe some of you here today, you feel lost. You feel confused. You're like, if anybody knew how little I had together, if anybody knew how I'm barely holding it together because I feel lost and confused, I feel like I'm wandering, I feel like I have no direction, and Jesus comes, the brightness of God, to guide your feet into the way of peace, to, to bring a sunrise into the shadow of death and darkness. And so look to Christ. Look to Christ to radiate the light of God into your life and then follow him. He will take you to the place of peace. He will take you to the place of hope and eternal life. See, listen, it's crucial to realize that Jesus is God in the flesh, the one who is radiating the full glory of God's light. I, I want you to understand this morning, it's not just something that happened through Jesus while he was on earth as a physical human. It's not just like, wow, this is amazing news for those 12 disciples and the faithful women that followed him and a few hundred other people that got to actually see him when he was on earth. This is not just talking about something that happened through Christ when he was on earth in the flesh. Because even now, the glory and the light of God can radiate directly into your heart through the presence of Jesus himself by his Holy Spirit truly shining into your heart. This is what the scriptures say in 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, footnote, quoting Genesis, right? Darkness and void, nothing. Before creation, there was nothing. And God spoke. He spoke light into existence. And the very same God, the very same creator God that said, let light shine out of darkness, that it happened, this Bible, this word of God says that it's the same God who shines into our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It's not just something that happens out there. It's not just something that happens back then. Listen, it's something that can happen in your heart today. God shining into your heart, giving the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. Listen, in the face of Jesus Christ, the very face of Jesus shining in your heart. See, this miracle of Christmas that God became flesh is now a miracle in your heart. 
The miracle of the virgin birth is now a miracle that can transform you. Because as God's light radiates into your heart, as you see the face of Jesus, something must happen. Every single time it happens, the person is changed. Every single time God's light shines into a man or woman's heart, every single time the face of Jesus is made known into a person's heart, he or she is changed. This is not some pie-in-the-sky, feel-good Christmas sentiment. This is real life. This is real men and women who are transformed. A non-believer reminded me of that this week. I was talking to a friend, a man who's not a Christian, does not even believe in God, he says. But he was telling me about another friend of his that's recently started attending church and started opening, opening up himself to the voice of God and spiritual things. And he described his friend to me. And he had a lot of admiration, ad, admiration for this guy, but he said he's kind of a hard man, a little rough around the edges kind of guy that could get set off and, and maybe fly off the handle, de- deals with some anger. You know, if you wrong him, you better watch out, right? And he said to him, like, I love this guy, but he's the guy you want on your side, right? Because if he's not on your side, you better watch out. And he said, but my friend has been changed. He said, now this friend of mine has become calm, and he's become kind, and he's become happy and friendly. And he said to him, I don't know what's happening to this man in this church He said, it must be some kind of miracle worker. His words, not mine. Now, praise God, this is Living Hope Church this man was talking about. And he doesn't understand what the the miracle worker is or who the miracle worker. He can't explain the transformation that he's seen happen in this man's life over the last couple of months, but I can. It's the light of the glory of God that has shined into his friend's heart and has transformed him. He is now born again. See, the miracle of Christ's birth has now been a birth in this man's heart. And I pray it is in your heart that you have been transformed, that you have been born again. That the miracle of Christmas is now, you can say, a miracle in my life. Because I'm different and I'm changed and Christ's light has shined into my darkness. And so that's what we celebrate. Amen? So the worship team's coming back up. We're going to sing again. We're going to pray again. And my prayer and my hope is that the Holy Spirit falls on you and shines into you. And you see the light of Christ in the face of Jesus himself, the very one who radiates the glory of God's light, the very one who gives us life, the very one who gives you direction and hope and peace in the midst of your darkness, that this Christmas would be a Christmas of life and of glory to God because of the work of Christ. Amen? Let's stand together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your word that speaks powerfully and meaningfully into our lives. We thank you for this complicated theological concept of the incarnation that is so personal and so practical that Jesus didn't just come as an idea. He didn't just come for the world in general. He came for you and me. And so, God, we ask now as we lift up this song, as we worship, that you'd make yourself known to us, that you would shine your light and radiate the face of Christ into the places in our lives, into our hearts that are still hurting and damaged. God, for those that came in riddled with guilt, for those that came in hiding, even from those that know them the best, for those that came in still wrestling with grief and sorrow and sadness, For those that came in this morning numb and cold and hard to the things of God, would your light warm us? 
and give us life. Come Holy Spirit. Come Holy Spirit and make yourself known to us that we could be changed for your glory to honor Christ in his name.